last week we kicked off this summer series that we're in. We're calling it Postcard uh, Prophets and Epistles. And again, the goal of the series is to go through some of the shorter um, letters and prophets that are found in God's Word, and we're going to kind of have a higher overview of some of them. Some of them are going to be one sermon covering an entire short book. And we're calling them postcard pass, or letters and epistles because um, they can fit on the back of a postcard, so to speak. Um, they're small enough to read in just a matter of minutes. Um, we are looking at Philemon this morning, and we started last week, and I mentioned last week this is going to be a two-part series. I decided this week that it's going to be a three-part series. Um, I, I think the topic is important enough. I, I think it speaks so much to um, our lives in some incredibly practical ways, and uh, so I, I want to take our time through this, and this morning, um, I want to look at what it means to have a heart that's ready to reconcile. Last week, we saw that, that what was required and what Paul did was worked on getting our heart ready to forgive, that it's necessary to have our hearts in a place that's ready to forgive. But forgiveness is part of a broader picture. It's a part of a broader principle, and that is the, the principle and the theological truth of reconciliation. In fact, reconciliation is a, a truth that is supposed to be pervasive in the Christian life. And I, I want to begin, as you're just staying there in Philemon, let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here, the apostle Paul reminds us of the centrality of the doctrine of reconciliation. It is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that we were once alienated and estranged from God. We were rebels. We were enemies. We had offended by our willful rebellion the God who created us to know and to love him. And as a result, we need desperately a reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. I love how Paul reminds us that, you know, if you want to kind of boil down the, the, the mission of the church, if you want to boil down the Great Commission, if you want to boil down the gospel message, in one sense, you might just say this, that we have been given a message of reconciliation. That's what Paul says right here. We are proclaiming a message of reconciliation to the world. Come, be reconciled to God. Come through Jesus Christ, who has made sin on your behalf, who took your sin upon himself And gave you his righteousness so that you could be brought back into that beautiful relationship with your creator like you were designed to know and experience. But here's my question this morning. If that is the heart of the gospel, if that is the message we proclaim to the world around us, how much more so should it be the message that we live out among us? And yet that's so much easier said than done. 
And while we go around as ambassadors of Christ, declaring, be reconciled to God, so many of us struggle to remain reconciled to one another. This world is fraught with relational problems because it's so fraught with sin. And it requires us to consider that if we're going to be ambassadors of reconciliation, if we're going to declare the message of reconciliation, we need to live the message of reconciliation among us. Do we practice what we preach? That is always the question when it comes to Christian doctrine. It is the question for us this morning. In fact, I want to provide, as we think about this, three questions to help make our hearts ready to reconcile. Before we get into the questions, I want to read um, the book of Philemon one more time for us. So let's begin. We're going to go all the way back to the first verse, and we're going to read to the very end. Let's read it together. It says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you, from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was departed from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. The book of Philemon, again, pointing us towards forgiveness and pointing us to this broader picture of reconciliation, specifically reconciliation between two individuals, Onesimus, who was a bondservant. He was an indentured servant. He was a slave, so to speak, in the ancient world, which was a common position in life. The vast majority of people in the ancient world would have fit into this category. 
It wasn't like North American slavery at all. Uh, so again, remove that picture from your mind. This was very different. This was much more like an employee-employer kind of relationship. Philemon, as we saw last week, is a leader in the church. He's a godly man. He's a personal friend of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is now writing to him because he has met this man, Onesimus. He has forged a deep friendship and relationship with him, but he knows that something needs to happen. You see, the relationship between these two men has been fractured. Onesimus has offended Philemon. He has removed himself from his obligations and his duties. He has run away And in the process, he is likely stolen from Philemon as well. He has done immense damage to the relationship. And as Paul looks at the situation, he takes it upon himself to help them reconcile. And when we look at our lives and the relationships that we have, we need to be asking the same question. When there is an offense that takes place either from us or against us, how do we handle that in a biblical way? How do we move forward towards reconciliation? And here I want to show uh, three questions that help make our hearts ready to reconcile. The first one is this, how do I understand reconciliation? It's important that we start off here because if we don't get this right, we can't go into the particulars of how we actually reconcile. We need to know what reconciliation actually is, what it actually means. We need to understand what the Bible says about it. And here we we get a glimpse of that in verses 8 and 9. As Paul says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Now, what's so interesting here is that as we understand reconciliation, here's the first thing you need to understand. It's a biblical obligation. Did you catch that there in Paul's words? It is a biblical obligation. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, which is the context that this is written in, it's written to to two people now who are in the church of Jesus Christ, two people who say they love the Lord Jesus Christ, two people who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He says, now you need to understand something. When you have disunity and factions and division in your relationships, you have a moral obligation to be reconciled to one another. Now, what's really interesting is that Paul here, he's so subtle in how he says this. You see this? Like, he doesn't walk in and wield his apostolic authority. He doesn't come down and kind of crack the whip and say, listen here, I'm the apostle Paul. You need to do what I say because what I say is of the Lord. Submit to me. If that's the way you approach reconciliation in your relationships, I can tell you it's not going to go well. Some of you have tried that. And you still need to be reconciled because of that. Paul teaches us something profound here, that while this is a a biblical obligation, there is wisdom in how we approach these situations and individuals in our life. Paul makes it very clear that this is a requirement. It is a requirement of being a Christian. It is a requirement of the Word of God. And Paul could have walked in and commanded it. He could have mandated that uh, Philemon obeyed this biblical exhortation and command? It is biblical, and we see this in a variety of different places. It's biblical, first of all, from the very lips of Jesus Christ, who made it clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, that we must go and reconcile um, divided and broken relationships if we're going to offer proper worship to God. 
He says, leave your, leave your gift. If you know that your brother uh, has an offense against you, uh, you need to leave your gift. You need to go be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. God says, I, I'm not going to accept your worship if you're unreconciled with other believers. We need to see that this call and, and biblical obligation to be reconciled is especially true in the household of God. Where God desires unity in the family of God, Jesus himself in John chapter 17 prayed for our unity. But Paul's approach, again, it's, it's so helpful. Generally speaking, people aren't beat into submission when it comes to obeying the word of God. That produces a pharisaical heart, not a heart that is desiring to truly please God. We can glean from Paul that it's important to understand who you're talking to when you're trying to deal with reconciliation. Paul knows who Philemon is. He knows the man's character. He knows that this man loves God. He knows that this man has great influence. He knows that this man is mature. Uh, he's not a stubborn, obstinate, rebellious individual. He's a humble, godly man. And so when Paul approaches him, he doesn't come down with a hammer and try to rebuke him. He deals with him as the kind of man that he is. He appeals to him as a one brother to another. He appeals for him on the basis of the commands of the word of God, but he does so in such a loving and compassionate and gracious way. We saw that last week. That Paul has been working to till the soil of Philemon's heart, reminding him of who he is, reminding him of how he's already blessed the body of Christ, how he's refreshed them with the way he's lived in that context. That's why he begins this section uh, accordingly or therefore. He's like, look, based on who you are, I need to remind you of your biblical obligation and I want to appeal to you to be faithful to it. It's important to understand that, listen, while reconciliation is a requirement, not an option, a gentle appeal generally works better than a strong rebuke. That, that doesn't mean there's not a place for a strong exhortation or strong rebuke, but generally speaking, this is the way we ought to approach a reconciliation and understand it. There is a compassionate appealing and pleading to be reconciled with one another. Why? Because genuine reconciliation isn't just a biblical obligation. It's intended by God to be, listen, secondly, a heart disposition. It's, it's not supposed to be just some kind of an external demonstration of obedience. That's never pleasing to God. God is never never excited about, happy with, pleased with his children simply going through the motions. External obedience is always rebuked in Scripture, and heart-required obedience, willful longing, desire of the heart to please God, that is what is always advocated in the Word of God. Now, this is a little bit more inferred than it is explicitly stated here. But I think it's inferred rightly from this idea of, of this appeal that Paul is making to Philemon. He appeals to him because he doesn't want him simply to go through the motions. He wants this to be a genuine expression of his love for the Lord, of his faithfulness to God. And how many times do we ourselves simply go through the motions in our relationships? We know we're supposed to forgive. Maybe we're reminded in, a, in a, an argument that we're supposed to forgive, and we simply go, fine, fine, I forgive you. 
How many times do we watch our kids do those very same things? How many times do we advocate to our kids just to do those very same things, right? Like, forgive your sister. Fine, I forgive you. Right, now go back to beating her with a toy. See, God wants it to be a, a sincere and true disposition of the heart. You say, well, does that mean I am an excuse to not forgive someone? <laughs> You know, like if my heart's not ready, if, if I'm not there yet, can I just simply hold off on the forgiveness piece? Now, now you may be like, oh, who would do that? Lots of people try this tactic. Lots of people push away from dealing with the issue, and they simply make an excuse. Oh, I'm not ready. My heart's not ready yet. Now, now there, is, there is a rightful place for getting your heart right before the Lord. That's what we're dealing with right here, okay? There is a rightful time to kind of get yourself away from the situation, maybe uh, depending on the degree of the offense, to make sure your heart is right so that you can rightly deal with the offense. But so often this is used as an excuse for never actually dealing rightly with the offense. So often, listen, a cold shoulder is a way of punishing the other person, of exacting vengeance upon the other person. Not of trying to truly reconcile. If that's your natural disposition to kind of punish the person with a cold shoulder, then, then you need to just kind of consider what the Word of God would say to you today. God wants your heart to be in a right place. So here's what that means. It means we have an opportunity. If that's us, if we pull away and we are constantly using the excuse, I'm not ready, we have an opportunity to first repent before we first forgive. Now, this is what Jesus advocated for in Matthew chapter 7. So often in our relationships, our heart's not ready because we're so focused on the other person's sin. We're consumed with it. All we can see is the other person's sin. And sometimes, listen, we're so obsessed with their sin, our vision has become so clouded, we've become so hurt, so wounded, that we actually can't even see their sin clearly anymore. Right? We, we've blown their sin up to epic proportions. Right? What was something very small has now become the greatest offense in the universe. And the word of God actually warns us against this. Here's how you deal with your heart. You see, Jesus said this. He said, look, before you go try to remove the speck of dust in your brother's eye, that is in saying that offense is actually quite little. Take the beam out of your own eye. Get the log out of your eye. You see, you see the problem with trying to remove a speck of dust from somebody else's eye when you have a beam in your eye? I mean, all you're actually doing is beating them over the head as you're trying to get closer to them. You're maintaining distance that does not allow you to see the true nature of that speck of dust in your brother or sister's eye. And so the Bible actually says, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, before you ever deal with the speck of dust in your brother's eye, you want to know what you need to do? He says, you take the beam out of your eye. See, how do I do that? Listen, if this is you, where you're so obsessed with the other person's sin that it is causing such deep anger and bitterness and resentment, here's the opportunity that you have, not to take the speck of dust out of your brother's and sister's eye, but to deal with your own heart before the Lord. It gives you the opportunity to repent. It gives you the opportunity to come low before God and to deal with your heart that has become so hardened by sin. We saw this last week that so often, listen, our hearts are in such a bad place. Listen, we are wounded by others' offenses against us. I understand that. But so often we fail to miss what's taking place in our own hearts. We become the greater offenders against God. We hold on to the bitterness. We hold on to the anger. We hold on to the unforgiveness. And then we become the primary one that God is kind of coming after and wanting to help deal with our own heart. Here's 
couple principles kind of flowing out of this. Listen, before you talk to someone else about their sin, talk to the Lord about your sin. Okay? That's a great principle. Just in any relational conflict, before you talk to somebody else about their sin, talk to the Lord about your sin. Here's just kind of flowing out of the broader principle. Deal with your heart before you deal with the heart of somebody else. God is after a heart attitude, and He goes for the one who's, this goes, by the way, sorry, for the one who's sinned as well, not just the one who's been offended. For the one who's sinned, if you know you've sinned against somebody, you need to first and foremost deal with your own heart before the Lord. I love that when David um, is confronted about his sin of adultery and murder in Psalm 51, he, he spills his guts. And he expresses this, this deep sense of shame. And here's how he begins in verse 4. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David looks at his grievous sin of adultery and murder. And here's the conclusion he comes to. God, my first and greatest sin is not against man, it's against you. You see what he does there? He deals with his heart first. He lets his own heart be impacted and broken down so that he can rightly deal with not only his offense, but those who have offended him with their sin. And that leads us to this next understanding of biblical reconciliation. Listen, it's not just a heart disposition, it's a relational transaction. And again, that is really the very nature of this book. You say, where do you get that from? It's the whole book. The whole book of Philemon is about taking two individuals and bringing them together in reconciliation. This is what Paul is, is attempting to do. And this is important because so often many of us simply believe we can deal with sin and relational offenses just between us and God, right? I'll just deal with God. I've, I've already repented to God. I don't need to go to somebody else. What Paul tells us, what the rest of Scripture tells us is that's not so. That's not so. There has to be a relational transaction. Once the heart is readied before God, it is readied for action. Once the vertical piece is done between you and God, now the horizontal piece can be done between you and your brother or sister. You say, how, how do I know if I should go to somebody specifically? This is a really, really important question. How do I know that i got to go and actually make this right and be reconciled with my brother or sister? Well, um, I mentioned Matthew 5 already, and let me, let me mention Matthew 18 as well. These two kind of give us both sides of this equation. Matthew 5 tells us that if we know that our brother has something against us, okay? In other words, if you are the offender in Matthew chapter 5, you drop your gift, you go, and you make it right. Now, Matthew 18 tells us that if your brother has sinned against you, you need to go to your brother and tell them their offense. Let them know their offense so they have the opportunity to deal with it. But you see, within that, there are a few layers that we can kind of deal with because the reality is, is we can't address every single offense against us, right? That would be exhausting. That would be painful. You would be removing yourself from every single relationship if this happened all the time because it would be nonstop. So how do we know which offenses are worthy of being addressed? I just want to give you just a few practical thoughts on that, um, just to help you know what you need to address and maybe what you don't need to address. Here's the first thing you need to be able to determine. Is the offense actually sin? Okay? 
Is the offense actually sin? Does the word of God actually lay this out as a sin? You see, so often we want to address offenses that are merely preferential. You know, you violated my preferences or things that have to do with somebody's personality. I don't like your, I don't like your, uh, your laugh and your behavior. The reason we need reconciliation is because there's been a legitimate sinful offense against us. We need to be able to determine that first of all. Here's something else we need to be aware of, a danger we need to be aware of when we think about going. Um, be aware that you're not assuming an offense. Assuming that somebody has sinned against. So we get ourselves in so much trouble this way, right? We believe in our hearts that somebody has sinned against us. And so rather than going and asking a question to clarify, we go with accusations. How much conflict would be avoided in your life if you simply learned to ask a few questions instead of assumed that this person was out to get you? Assumed that they meant to hurt you. By the way, that leads to another great principle. Consider the intentionality of the offense. Look, sometimes we offend each other unintentionally. Sometimes we sin against each other unintentionally, and and it's a one-off. It's not a, a normal pattern. I would encourage you, if it's a one-off, and depending on the degree and nature of the sin, if it's just something that, that you know was unintentional, I would encourage you, just eat the offense. You don't have to go after every little thing that somebody does to you in an unintentional way. But if it is intentional, and if it is something that is habitual, I would encourage you, you are required to go and show your brother or sister that offense. If you see them doing it on purpose, if you see that this is becoming a habit and a pattern in their life, then you need to, out of love, go and address this issue. Um, I would encourage you, if you've done kind of the vertical work in your heart before the Lord, you know, sometimes you're going before the Lord and you're just like, Lord, is this really worth me going after? Uh, Lord, I'm not, I'm trying not to hold it. If, if it is something after you've done that vertical work that you're still obsessing about, listen, you just, you can't get away from the hurt. You can't get away from the pain. I would encourage you to go and to deal with that with your brother or sister. Uh, And one more thing just to maybe deal with in this. What happens if the person who I have offended or who has offended me has died? This is a a real issue for a lot of people. People are are living in woundedness or they're living in a a sin that they have committed against somebody who's no longer alive. Someone that they don't have the potential to actually deal with that offense with. And I would just encourage you, if that's the case, then the repentance and the forgiveness needs to take place solely before you and the Lord. And you need to rest in the peace that God provides for you in that. There are things we must let go in relationships, and there are times that we must go in relationships. And when we go, there are two things required for a transaction of re- reconciliation to take place, okay? And this is going to bridge us into the next two points. Two things that are necessary for a relational transaction to take place. That is a genuine repentance and true forgiveness. Um, It is a personal pet peeve of mine um, when I hear people simply walk up to another individual who's offended them and say, you know what, I just wanted to let you know, I forgive you. Now, that's not the pile on you. If you you do that, um, maybe you can just kind of consider just the nature of what that is saying for just a a moment. Um, That is short-circuiting the biblical process that God has given 
Now, that may be true in your heart, that there has been that, that vertical attitude and heart disposition of forgiveness. That is right, that is good, and I would advocate for that. But that doesn't mean you immediately jump to this place of extending that forgiveness without there being a reciprocal repentance. In fact, if you just look at your relationship with God, you see that the order this is supposed to work, don't you? I mean, God doesn't just walk up to sinners and say, uh, by the way, I want you to know, I forgive you. When you look at the gospel call, the gospel call is this, repent of your sin, right? And put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven. Repentance always precedes forgiveness. Now, does God want us to know that forgiveness is open? Yes, and there's a, a rightful place with that in our relationships as well. It's good to stand ready to repent. And there will be times when we are ready to repent, by the way, when the offending party simply does not want to repent, does not want nor care about the forgiveness that you are offering. And if that happens to you, let me just encourage you, that's okay as well. Um, there's a process of getting others involved if it's in the life of the church that calls people to repentance in, uh, in areas of sin. You say, well, what if it's an unbeliever? Listen, the Word of God says, as much as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. You do whatever you need to do before the Lord, and if the other person won't reciprocate, you can't force them to repent. You can't force them to forgive. You can only do what God has called you to do. That's your greatest responsibility. And if you've dealt with the hurt already before God, the offense before God, then your joy and your ability to move forward is not dependent upon the other person's response. It's dependent upon God's grace and peace to you. But that does lead us into kind of asking then, how do we do this well? How do we reconcile well? Here's, here's the question, how do I demonstrate repentance? If repentance comes first, we need to deal with this first. And again, this is more inferred from this letter. Paul is rightly focused on Philemon and on the forgiveness that he wants Philemon to be able to offer, but don't miss that that requires Onesimus to actually be repentant. And throughout this letter, as Paul is describing what is required of Philemon, he is also hinting at and describing what is necessary for, for Onesimus to do. Onesimus is a, a man who is seeking to demonstrate true repentance. That is why Paul is striving to bridge this gap. Onesimus has made this clear. I, I want to do what's right. I want to repent of my sin. Now, notice the language of this point. How do I demonstrate repentance? You see, the Scriptures talk about bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. In other words, there are evidences of genuine repentance. You know a tree by its fruit. Repentance is a biblical word. It's a biblical word that means to turn away from something and to literally turn and walk in the opposite direction. In other words, this idea of repentance, again, it's not just about lip service. It's not just about saying the right formula. It's about demonstrating that in action and in life. We can glean some biblical principles here and see how we too are called to demonstrate true repentance. True repentance, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, is a byproduct of a godly sorrow, and that reminds us of this, that repentance is demonstrated first with genuine contrition. Genuine contrition. 
This isn't a worldly sorrow where you simply repent because you've been caught or repent to avoid the consequences. Being caught and avoiding consequences do not negate the reality that that can sometimes lead to genuine repentance. But oftentimes, people are caught in this trap of being unable to genuinely repent because they're more consumed with what it cost them. I got caught. This is going to cost me through the consequences. I want to avoid that. I want to, I want to maintain a decent reputation, whatever it may be. Here, those are thrown out the window entirely. Look at how Paul begins to demonstrate the repentance of Onesimus. This genuine contrition is modeled in, in two ways. First, notice this, the salvation of Onesimus. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. What Paul is saying here is that something had powerfully happened in the life of Onesimus. He had met the apostle Paul uh, as, as he had fled from his um, slavery or indentured servitude. Certainly Onesimus, uh, he had known of the apostle Paul. Paul had visited, likely, a Philemon. He knew of the relationship and friendship. Maybe he stumbled across him, and he didn't know anybody as he fled, and so he saw Paul maybe preaching one day. And Paul was preaching this powerful message of the gospel of reconciliation, as he always did, and Onesimus was hit and struck by the reality of the gospel. He was struck by the weight of his own sin. You see, Paul always preached a message that contained a heavy dose of sin, didn't he? I mean, just read the book of Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. I mean, Paul just laid on the reality of sin and the offense against God. And maybe already Onesimus was being prepared by God. His heart was being stirred by God. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And as he stood and as he heard the apostle Paul preaching the gospel, the weight of his sin slapped him in the face. I have no doubt, although this is a little bit of conjecture, that Paul maybe recognized Onesimus, maybe asked him what he was doing there, and he knew who he was, he knew, he knew that he wasn't supposed to be there, and that Paul had a focused conversation with Onesimus and about his sin. You know, it's interesting, oftentimes we like to talk about sin in general with people. We like to tell people that, you know, they're, they're sinners, we're all sinners, which is absolutely true. But did you know one of the most effective ways of preaching the gospel to somebody is helping them see their specific sin? Every one of us can kind of agree we're generally sinners, but listen, sin smacks you in the face when you realize how you have specifically offended a holy God. How you are currently living in a place of sin. Isn't that true when you read the Word of God? When you read the Word of God and you're reading through the Scriptures and you're generally thinking about sin, you can kind of like you shut your Bible and go, okay, well, yeah, I guess we're all sinners. But when all of a sudden the Spirit of God grabs a hold of your heart and peels it open by the Word of God, you're staring at yourself in the face and you're confronted with the reality of a specific sin in your life, how it often just flattens you. Maybe Onesimus was struck in the heart with the reality of his very specific sin, not just his general sin, and he realized that, and he did what all who 
who uh, are saved do. He repented of his sin. He was broken by his sin. I mean, he, he confessed that Jesus Christ had to pay for his sin. He confessed that he could not earn his way back to God. He could not reconcile himself to God. And he confessed that Jesus Christ was his Lord and Master. Not only do we see that in how Paul describes him, he listen, I love this, my child, I'm his father. I mean, Paul is taking some ownership here of how God had used him in his life to lead him to salvation. But what we see is so sweet in verse 11. It wasn't just lip service from Onesimus. Uh, Paul saw the genuine transformation of his life. We always see this in genuine, listen, Contrition, we see not only how salvation impacts how we operate, but how the genuine transformation of the Spirit of God in our lives operates. There's a bit of a play on words in verse 11 here. It's really maybe a little bit of tongue-in-cheek from Paul. You see, the name Onesimus actually means useful. It was a common name for servants in the ancient world. And so Paul is kind of, he's kind of playing it up a little bit with, uh, Philemon, and he's saying, listen, um, he's now useful. I know, I, know, I know useful was once useless to you, Philemon, but now, now he's actually useful. Paul draws attention to the reality that this man's life had been radically altered. And this is what the gospel of reconciliation does in a believer's heart. It takes us and it changes us. Make no mistake about it, um, sin in our lives renders us in many ways useless to God. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin renders us useless in the hands of God. We need our sin forgiven, and we need our lives transformed by the grace of the gospel. There was a, uh, an infamous gangster in the 1950s by the name of Mickey Cohen. And uh, Charles Colson tells the story in, uh, in one of his books, and he says that this, this gangster, Mickey Cohen, he was beginning to visit some evangelistic meetings at the time. He was well-known. He, he loved uh, having a reputation as a gangster, but he began to, began to visit these evangelistic meetings, and eventually he was confronted with the gospel, and after a lengthy conversation, he, he professed faith in Jesus Christ. But months went by, and his friends who were Christians who were looking at his life, they saw no change at all. And eventually, some of his Christian friends went to confront him on this reality, and his response was this. He said, no one told me I'd have to give up my work and my friends to follow Jesus. He says, well, there's Christian athletes and Christian politicians. Why can't there be Christian gangsters? <laughs> because the gospel demands a transformed life. That's why. Because Jesus always preached the cost of discipleship. That's why. Because Jesus demanded that we leave behind our old life if we are going to truly come and follow him. The gospel radically transforms our lives. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if we don't, 
then it is not genuine repentance. It is not genuine contrition. If there is no change, there may be worldly sorrow, but there is no true godly sorrow that produces this genuine repentance. David experienced this again in Psalm 32 in his very own life. He lived in this sin, listen, of murder and adultery, concealing his sin, unwilling to be broken of his sin for a year until he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And in a graphic way, as his sin was exposed, David was broken, recognizing that he indeed was the man. He was responsible for his sin. And listen to what he says. Listen, if you, if you want to continue to live like this, then this is, this is what you need to expect. If you want to live in your sin, if you want to live, listen, not with any genuine repentance, unbroken, no contrition, no godly sorrow, here's what David says. It will be true for you as it would be true for me. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David rendered useless, joy stripped away, desire and longing for God stripped away. This is always the byproduct of false repentance. False repentance is an indicator of a false disciple. Living in sin destroys us. Oh, how we desperately need to embrace this message in every area of our life. Choosing to lead, live in sin. Listen, you're choosing to suffer. You're choosing to render yourself useless. You're choosing to lose joy. You're choosing it. And the Bible calls you to choose life with genuine contrition in your heart. True brokenness before God produces radical transformation. You say, how do I get this? How do I get this? Let me give you just one simple way to get this, okay? Get yourself before the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe you're an unbeliever here today. You're like, how do, I, how do I become broken in my sin? How do, I, how do I truly be broken and weep over my sin? How do, I, how do I become crushed by the weight of my sin? Here's what you do. You get before the cross of Jesus Christ, okay? You can't get yourself away from the cross. Now listen, here's the problem. Many Christians, they train themselves to look at the cross and run to grace first. Listen, that is a mistake if you're looking to be broken of your sin. Hold on. We love grace, Amen. Okay, listen, but you cannot love grace if you do not hate your sin. And the reason, listen, that grace lacks in our lives, the reason that we do not feel the way about grace, that we ought to feel about grace, is because we do not feel the way about our sin, that we ought to feel about our sin. And you see, listen, when you walk to the cross first, here's what you need to do. You need to look at the cross and you need to see what your sin cost God. Don't run from that. Sit in it. Sit, sit at the foot of the cross. Put your sin there. And don't just think about what it's costing you to acknowledge your sin. Don't just think about the damage it's done to other people. Look at the damage it did to the Son of God. Sit there, sit there and acknowledge before God, God, I put Jesus there. I put him there. If there was no other human being in the world, no, there had to be two if there's going to be an offense against someone. If there was no one else, listen, I would have been responsible for that. Don't get away from it. The weight of your sin, listen, crush your prideful, stubborn, resistant heart. Let it break you open so that you can then turn to the cross and listen, sit in the grace of the gospel. 
You can see the love of God who says, yes, yes, your sin put my son there. Yes, your sin cost me my own son. But yes, I love you. And yes, I gladly gave him for you. That's how you get broken of sin. That's how you get broken from sin. Get to the foot of the cross and stay there until you can say in the depths of your soul, it was my sin that held him there. And when that happens, it leads you to this place. You see, repentance is demonstrated in humble confession. Verse 12, look at what he says. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Look how Paul feels about him. It's like he's losing his heart. He's so amazed by this transformation of the gospel in this man's life. This man has become so dear to him in service to Paul. He says, I'm sending my very heart. You know, true contrition always leads us to this place. Owning and acknowledging our sin before God. Listen, and here's what we see here, before others. True contrition always leads here. Paul is sending him back. I want you to just stop and pause for a minute. You're like, how do we know? How do we know that Onesimus was willing to go back? He is likely standing right in front of Philemon right now as Philemon reads this letter. You realize that? So Philemon's kind of got this letter from Paul. Maybe he's a little bit kind of bothered. He sees Onesimus. He can't believe his eyes. And as he reads this letter, he's reading this letter as Onesimus is maybe sitting there with his head down, his arms in front of him, his body language demonstrating, listen, a broken and contrite spirit. And the fact that Onesimus was there is a demonstration of his own personal humble confession to Philemon. He is saying, in effect, Philemon, I I know I have wronged you. I have come back to make this right. I am owning my sin. You know, to own your sin, to truly confess your sin, is to agree with God. It is to agree with God that his judgment against your sin is right. David says this in Psalm 32 again, verse 5. He says, I I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You say, yeah, but but that's David only saying it to God. Did, Did he say it to other people? He wrote the psalm. He told the world. Here's what this means, to confess your sin in humility. It means this, listen, at least in part, it means this, I'm not excusing my sin. I'm not justifying my sin. I will not disregard my offense against you. I will not try and explain my sin. I'm owning it in full. And this, listen, this is where many struggle in their day-to-day relationships. And this is maybe how you can identify that some of the repentance you think you're offering, some of the confession you think you're offering is not genuine, it's not true, because so many of us, listen, we throw a but into our repentance, don't we? There are no buts in repentance. Some of you are like, but, no, that's the problem. The problem is, listen, when we are confessing your sin and then we throw a but in there, we just negate everything we just said. 
We're trying to defend ourselves again. We're not making it about our offense against the other person. We're making it about how we were actually, you know, kind of partially okay or right by doing it. We're excusing our action, and there is no place for that in genuine confession. Confession costs you, and here's what it will cost you primarily. Listen, this is so good. Listen, your pride. Your pride. Lower your pride. Come in humility. Own it all. Lay it down. No buts. And then repentance is demonstrated lastly by willing compensation. Verse 13, he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. <laughs> like, he was, he was giving me great service here. He served me so well in my imprisonment, Philemon, in order that he might, though, serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Listen, Philemon needed to know that Onesimus had truly changed. He was a new man. He was serving the Lord. Philemon was probably in his sweet spot in ministry with Paul. I mean, he was having the time of his life, probably. I mean, he was probably growing tremendously in the Lord. He couldn't believe the opportunity he now had as a new Christian to be discipled by Paul, to be used by God, to serve alongside Paul. Listen, but Philemon and Onesimus and Paul they know that doing the right thing is not always easy. It is often very costly. And so Paul wants him to stay, yeah, and serve alongside him, but he wants him to do what's actually right, what's better. He wants him to go back and make this right. He wants him to, in, in a matter of words, pay what he owes. And if Philemon wants to keep him there and use him for the service that he is owed, then that's totally fine. But Paul's obviously making it clear he would much rather that you send him back to me Onesimus here, he does the hard thing. He does the less comfortable thing. He does the costly thing. He comes back and he will stay if that is what is required. And when we have wronged another individual, part of demonstrating true repentance is being determined to do what is right, what is often hard, and what is usually costly. Make this part of your repentance. Evaluate what must be done. Ask the other person who's been offended, what can I do to make this right before you? And then do what must be done. Earn back trust. Show your repentance through your actions. And with that side of the equation done, we must then ask, how do I extend forgiveness? Verse 14 through 16, very quickly, here's what Paul essentially tells us. Here's how you and I can extend forgiveness. First, with willing reception. Verse 14, he says, But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul does not want Philemon to have a begrudging obligation. He knows that Philemon would say, you know what, just keep him, that's fine. But he doesn't want to impose this upon Philemon. He wants Philemon to do this on his own accord. He's wanting this process to produce fruit, not only in Onesimus, but also in Philemon. And this requires that Philemon and Onesimus work this out biblically. They do the right thing. And just as Onesimus has done the right thing by coming to Philemon, Philemon must do the right thing by, by opening his arms with a willing reception. 
And it's easy to miss the significance of this in our relationships, right? We, we often, when we've been offended by somebody else, we sit and stew upon the offense. We relive it in our minds. We relitigate it over and over, right? The inner lawyer is activated. We become the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We dream about how we would exact vengeance, And even as Christians, our tendency could be to to simply, listen, obey out of compulsion. And the danger is that this will not produce lasting fruit in anyone's life, certainly not our own, because it's not genuine heartfelt forgiveness, which is what God requires. Paul doesn't want him to do this out of compulsion. He wants him to go through the process that God has designed. He wants there to be a genuine transaction that takes place. And we should be cultivating a heart that is willing to meet with anyone who has offended us. God loves a a heart that longs to be reconciled, that willingly receives, that isn't there to simply judge and cast people out, that doesn't look at somebody who's coming to be reconciled and say, yeah, it's about time. Or no, I don't think so. I'm not ready. And that requires us to live in joyful recognition. We invite people with a willing reception because of the joyful recognition of what God's doing. That's the next point. Verse 15 Paul says, for this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Again, this is combating this, the cynical skepticism that often infiltrates our hearts. We're resistant. We don't think somebody's genuinely repentant. We, we want to judge their uh, repentance. Paul here sees a bigger picture that we would do well to see as well. Paul sees something bigger to grasp in this whole thing. He says, maybe, maybe this, is, this is God's hand all along. Perhaps God was trying to do something unique in his life and in your life. Maybe in the, the mystery of God's providence, he's trying to grow us and he's trying to display the gospel in a powerful way. Maybe God has given you, Philemon, an opportunity through either your repentance or your forgiveness to forge a sweeter, more precious relationship. Do you ever stop to think about that? We so often run past conflict. We think it is, it is completely a waste of time. But do you realize that sometimes God is bringing you through the process of conflict and resolution so that he can actually deepen the relationship that you have with that individual? Because humility does that in our relationships. Restoration does that in our relationships. This is what the gospel did for us. I mean, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's what Jesus says in Luke 15, 7. We ought to rejoice not only in repentance and contrition that leads to salvation, listen, but in seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in somebody's life. It ought to be a sweet moment when we see somebody who's broken over the sin come back and with tears in their eyes, weeping or confessing or simply just acknowledging, confessing, I hurt you, I wronged you, I sinned against you, and I'm longing for your forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? There ought never to be a, a sense of 
looking down our nose at somebody who does that, there ought to always be a sense of just rejoicing. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. And if that is your attitude, I promise you that will forge a sweeter relationship with that individual as you get the privilege of extending forgiveness like God has extended forgiveness to you. And that leads lastly to this idea of loving restoration. He looks at him in verse 16, and Philemon, from the, from the heart of Paul, he says, no longer to see him as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is a sweet picture of a loving restoration. He calls him to see him no longer as a bondservant, but as a loving brother, somebody who is part of the family. And as we saw last week, listen, family forgives. Family restores. He didn't just come back physically to Philemon. He came back spiritually to Philemon. He came back, yes, to fulfill his, his physical obligations and responsibilities, but he came back with spiritual obligations to the family of God. There is a beautiful picture of restoration here that we're going to pick up on next week. And that will be our focus for then. But I, I want you to hear um, the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as we close our time together. I want you to listen to these words from Paul. There was an issue in the church in Corinth. And Paul had been urging the church to restore a, a sinning brother back into the church, and it's so beautiful. Listen to what he says. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to you, all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Listen to what he says. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted, listen to this, by Satan, for we are not ignorant to his designs. Listen, restoration is incredibly important in the body of Christ. Satan would love to see you live in bitterness. He would love to see you live in unforgiveness. He would love to see you live in disunity in the family of God. That is the heart of Satan. But we are called to have the heart of Jesus. Be reconciled to Christ is the call of the gospel. Be reconcilers like Christ is the call to the church. Father, we pray that we would see the call to be like Jesus, that we would embrace this call in our lives, Lord, that you would make this true in us. We want to embrace your reconciling power, and we want to live it out in our lives. Would you be pleased, God, to do this in our midst, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.